Let's turn now to the first epistle of John, and we'll read from chapter 2, first 14 verses. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Let's also turn our book of forms and prayers to Heidelberg Catechism 51. What does the fifth petition mean? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means because of Christ's blood. Do not impute to, impute to us poor sinners that we are any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. Forgive us, just as we are fully determined, as evidence of your grace in us, wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we're returning to the Lord's Day that uh, we missed in our um, studies on the Heidelberg Catechism. That is the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors, or those who have sinned against us. And forgiveness of sins is at the heart of God's covenant mercy uh, to his people. Uh, we heard an assurance of pardon uh, this morning from the letter to the Hebrews in which the prophet Jeremiah is quoted uh, describing that new covenant that is revealed in Christ in terms of the forgiveness of sins, uh, their sins and their lawless deeds. I will uh, remember no more. In uh, John's letter to the church, he addresses uh, the little children. And uh, whether that refers especially to those who may be little children, literally, or little children new in the faith, uh, all God's people are little children, and all God's people are assured of what the John, John uh, says to them when he says, I write to you little children, uh, because your sins are forgiven. All Christians are forgiven all their sins. That's what justification 
involves. There is no condemnation uh, to those who are in Christ Jesus. But we also uh, know that this forgiveness is not something that is then just taken for granted, as if sin itself is no longer any issue whatsoever in the Christian life, as if uh, being justified in God's sight, having a certain standing in Him through Christ, as if being justified, there's no longer any need for confession of sin, or there is uh, no longer any kind of ongoing forgiveness of sin in the Christian life. It would be a great mistake to draw such a, a, a conclusion. In fact, the contrary is taught in this fifth uh, request or this fifth petition of uh, the Lord's Prayer. Right along with our daily prayer for for bread, our Lord Jesus teaches us to pray daily uh, for the forgiveness of sins. We not only know that God has forgiven us our sins, and he has been gracious to us to pardon and to accept us in the beloved. We not only know that that is true, but we also live daily uh, by that that grace of God's saving love and mercy as uh, as those who still do fall far short of God's glory. Now, that doesn't mean that we fall back into a state of condemnation in which we relate to God as a judge, but uh, it does mean that we contract defilements from sin and uh, we need to have those sins cleansed and washed away. Those sins would not only defile us before God, but they would they would disrupt our fellowship with our Father unless we continually come to the throne of grace uh, to receive mercy and to uh, receive help in our ongoing conflict with sin. In Micah, we heard those wonderful words of verse 18, Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Who is a God like you, pardoning sin, pardoning iniquity? Who has grace so rich and free? Who is a pardoning God like thee? I'm misquoting a a hymn that uh, quotes from uh, this passage. And uh, what we ought to hear, even in this exclamation of praise and thanksgiving, is that God's pardoning mercy is a theme of praise and profound gratitude for our entire lives. And again, that means living upon this grace uh, that we are assured of in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is expressed in our ongoing confession of sin and our confident request uh, for the forgiveness of sins for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is continually displayed in forgiveness. That's our theme that we're considering uh, from this petition this uh, evening. And we begin by considering that this request for the forgiveness of sins is a request that God commands us to make. Uh, you recall perhaps uh, the words of uh, question and answer 118 in this Lord's Day that introduces the subject of prayer. The question asks, what has God commanded us to ask of him? And the answer there is everything we need spiritually and physically as embraced in the prayer Christ our Lord himself taught us. And so that includes every petition of the Lord's Prayer, including the one before us, as a petition, a request that God has commanded us to make. When you pray, Jesus said, 
say. And that's a, a very solid scriptural foundation for actually using the words of the Lord's Prayer. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, they must be used continually, but they not only serve as an outline and a pattern for uh, the kind of prayer that is acceptable to God, the very words themselves teach us a perfect prayer that is most suitable for us to to pray uh, re- uh, verbatim. I don't say repeat, I say pray. To pray these words, uh, confident that they are the very words that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray and uh, can give us great confidence in the acceptability of these petitions. Because he's not only taught us, but he's commanded us uh, to pray for these things. And uh, this command itself proclaims uh, God's grace to us. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, we read that God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Now that implies that wherever this command to repent is heard, that all indeed should respond to it. All should recognize divine authority in this command to repent. And that means that all men who hear this command should indeed seek God's mercy because there is no true repentance that consists simply of a kind of regret and a kind of remorse for sin. True repentance always is calling upon God for forgiveness and for grace. And so in commanding all men everywhere to repent, God commands all men everywhere to seek His pardoning grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that implies, doesn't it, that God is willing to show mercy to all those who call upon Him. To all those who seek His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that also means that we're not concerned here at this point with the secret counsel and will of God. But we're concerned with what has been clearly revealed in Scripture that all people who hear the Word of God, all people who hear the Gospel ought to take very, very seriously as a revelation of God's will for them what He commands them to do, and they ought to hear it as a revelation of good news because He's commanding them to receive grace and mercy for which there is abundant provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. All should avail themselves of this provision. And you see, that that removes the kind of excuses that people make to themselves for turning a deaf ear to the Gospel. And sometimes those excuses go something like, well, I'm such a great sinner. There's really no hope for me. It doesn't matter how great one's sins are. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Some might say, well, I've continued in sin for so long. I've sinned against light and privilege, and therefore uh, it's too late for me. No, God commands you to repent. And with that command is the implication of abundant provision for sinners who have sinned against light and privilege for a long time. It's a command that reaches hypocrites. It's a command that in effect says it doesn't matter how long you've played a religious game. It's time to get real. It's time to turn to me in true repentance and seek mercy and forgiveness that I promise to all those who call upon me. Well, someone might say, well, I'm afraid that I'm not among the elect. Well, that's really not your concern. Your concern is to take God seriously when He commands all men everywhere to repent. 
and to hear that summons to repentance as a revelation of a God of mercy and grace who delights in mercy and who will never refuse anyone who comes to him with a realization of their need and seeks mercy in the way that God has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. With him is abundant redemption, sufficient to cover the worst of sinners, whatever their situation may be. And so actually this command and even even the instruction of the Lord's prayer to say, forgive us, forgive me my sins. Well, there's good news there. It's the revelation of God's grace. In fact, this removes an obstacle that we as God's children might even put in the way of our own repentance. If you are guilty and you are ashamed of some sin, you might think, we're accustomed to think this way. We might never say it, but we are accustomed to acting this well. That, well, I need some time, and God probably needs some time before I can really expect forgiveness from Him. I need some time really to just feel horrible and feel really guilty for a while. I, I, I need some time so I get over this sense of shame and guilt, so that when I feel a little bit better about myself, then I may expect God's forgiveness. Or I need, I need some time to kind of clean up my act a little bit so that when I come and finally seek mercy and forgiveness, I have some evidence that I'm sincere, that I've already worked pretty hard to be good. You see, we can come up with all kinds of uh, reasons to delay uh, repentance and to hold God's grace off at arm's length, so to speak, without realizing that when the, the blood of our sins, as it were, is yet on our conscience or on our hands, we ought to turn to God for mercy and for forgiveness, say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. While I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent in grief. Your hand was heavy on me. My soul found no relief. When I own transgression, my sin hid not from thee. When I confess transgression, then thou forgavest me. The silence of guilt is not pleasing to the Lord. We need to come with our guilt to God and believe in His pardoning mercy. And this command also teaches us, doesn't it, to take to heart the reality of our need. We read, well, we didn't read it actually, but it's in the previous chapter. In verse 10 of First John 1, it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, I had a conversation maybe about a year and a half ago with a man who claimed that as a Christian, he ought not to pray for the forgiveness of sins. And he even claimed that he doesn't sin anymore in such a way that requires such forgiveness. And I quoted this passage to him. It says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And he said, well, I'm not saying that I have not sinned. I have sinned, but I've repented and now I'm a Christian. Thankfully, I had recently read this book. I said, yes, but you got to back up three verses. And there it says, if we say that we have no sin, present tense, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's not simply a matter of acknowledging that we have sinned in the past. It's a matter of recognizing that we have sinned yet. We fall short of the glory of God. We transgress His commandments. We never keep His will perfectly. We are 
Poor sinners. Poor sinners that we are. That's the language of this uh, confession of sin that we're taught here. We are spiritually impoverished. We're destitute. In me, Paul says, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. And left to ourselves, without Christ, that's all we are. That which is flesh is flesh. Whatever good thing we're ever enabled to do, it's by God's grace. And whatever good thing we're enabled to do, it's never perfect. It's never without any remnants of the stain and the effects of sin. Now someone might say at this point, well, I really don't feel my sin adequately. That's the problem. I wish I had a more humble, uh, deep sense of my sin. Then I would feel that perhaps I'm a better candidate for forgiveness. You don't adequately feel the depths of your sin? Well, no kidding. That's right. You cannot count your actual sins. You couldn't number them. They're more than the hairs of your head. And so many of them pass by without any twinge of conscience, without even being aware of how what you said or what you thought really reflects the depravity of your nature that yet resides within you. And do we adequately realize the depths of that original sin that clings to us? How does our catechism put it? Forgive us. And not, do not impute to us, poor sinners, that we are any of the transgressions we do or the evil that clings to us. That's original sin. That's this defilement of our nature such that we always have this inclination. We always have this bent towards sin. And it's never eradicated in this life. It's not eradicated from the child of God. That's right. We don't adequately feel our sins. But that's not the point. God knows our sins. And the God who knows our sins commands us to say, Father, forgive me my sins. Forgive me my iniquities. And to pray with assurance and confidence, believing indeed that his grace is sufficient to continually cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's grace is continually displayed in forgiveness. And we ought to hear it even in this request that God commands us to make. And we need to consider the, the mercy then that God promises to give. Micah 7, to go back to this chapter, we didn't read the whole chapter, but the chapter actually gives a, a, a very dark uh, summary of the spiritual condition of, of God's, uh, God's people. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. In other words, there is no fruits of righteousness evident among these people. It's like Isaiah 5, where God describes uh, Israel as a vine that he took out of Egypt and planted and nurtured and, and protected. And then it didn't bear fruit, only sour grapes. No fruitfulness. Few, if any, faithful men left. Verse 2, the faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among men. Violence and treachery. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. The corruption of authorities. The prince asks for gifts, that is, a bribes. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. Breakdown in family life. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. 
For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. And this brings judgment. Verse 13 says, The land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it. And for the fruit of their deeds. Yeah, they produce bad fruit. But judgment is not the final word in this passage. There is a promise of restoration. The prophet speaks of being humbled, the reality of bearing the indignation of, of the Lord, because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause. But that, that, uh, restoration that follows humbling is not simply true of the individual, but it's true of a nation. God will show mercy. God will restore, uh, Israel from captivity. He will shepherd his people again. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, it says in verse 15, out of the land of, I will show them wonders. And you see, that's, that's the background, uh, to those verses that we read. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The Bible often uses uh, language of, uh, of uh, tremendous distance and dimension to describe the greatness of, of God's mercy. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his uh, loving kindness towards us. As far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Casting them into the depths of the sea, out of sight, out of mind. Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the day of old. Forgiveness of sins at the heart of God's covenant mercy. Again, to refer to uh, Hebrews chapter 8 that quotes of the new covenant. Verse 12 says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Now, that doesn't mean that God indulges unrighteousness. No, he will be mercy to the people, despite their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. John declares the basis for this mercy, this covenant mercy, when he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. If you survey all of humanity from the beginning of creation till now, throughout the world, none righteous, no, not one, but this one, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Righteous to stand on our behalf before the Father as our advocate, who pleads our cause, who pleads his own merits on our behalf. Righteous to offer himself as the spotless lamb whose blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness and righteous to clothe us with his perfect obedience instead of, in place of, the imputation of our sins. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. That's the language also of our catechism. Because of Christ's blood, we pray, do not impute to us, poor sinners that we are, any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us. In other words, don't hold us to account for them. They are ours. They are ours by nature. They're ours by practice. But don't treat us as if they are ours. Do not 
hold them against us. Do not put them to our account because of the fact that you put them to Christ's account. They were not his, but he took them upon himself, willingly, in your gracious purpose towards sinners. And so look upon us as those covered in the blood of your Son and robed in his righteousness. God who delights in mercy, delights to glorify his Son in the continuous overflow of grace to us for his sake. This is the mercy that God promises to give. And we are to pray then with confidence in abundant redemption in Christ. You know that God killed all the firstborn in Egypt. They were ba- they were uh, devoted to him. That's actually the language of uh, of scripture. They were devoted to him. And that means that they were devoted to judgment and his destruction. And all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn on the throne to the uh, firstborn of the lowliest slave, God judged Egypt by killing their firstborn. And in that same book, we have the repeated reference to God's people as his firstborn. He delivered his firstborn. And he delivered them through the blood of the Passover lamb that was smeared on the doorposts of their home so that the angel of death passed over them, did not execute judgment upon his firstborn, And then we're told that every firstborn among the people of God, the literal firstborn, Israel as a body is God's firstborn, but every literal firstborn, everyone that opens the womb, was to be devoted to God. They belong to him. But God, instead of taking the firstborn of every family, he took the Levites in their place. A whole tribe of of Israel. They served as a substitute for all the firstborn. But it was a kind of one-for-one substitute. One firstborn from this family required one Levite to take his place. And that was such a strict requirement that when it appeared that there were actually more firstborn sons among the people of Israel than there were Levites to go around, for those that were left over, they had to pay a redemption price in order to make up for the fact uh, that there was a deficiency in the number of Levites to cover all the firstborn. So there was a kind of one-for-one correspondence involved in, in the redemption of the firstborn through the Levites, who were especially consecrated to God in the service of the tabernacle and the offering of sacrifices. But in considering this recently, it really struck me, for one thing, it really struck me, the one-for-one character of this substitution. For every literal firstborn, there must be a Levite to take his place. But Jesus is not one-for-one. He's not a substitute for one desperate, condemned sinner, so that by his death, yes, he can make atonement for one. He's not one for ten. He's not one for a hundred. He's not one for a thousand. He's not one for a million. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. There is a sufficiency in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ to provide redemption for every lost sinner who would resort to Him. And God is glorified in His Son. 
His beloved Son, who is so great as to bear the wrath of God against the human race, to take their place, to offer the perfect sacrifice, and to provide a righteousness that's sufficient to cover every sinner, abundant redemption that's found in Him. Jesus is for a whole world of sinners who would come and say, Father, forgive us our sins. Forgive my sins for the sake of Christ's blood. And then thirdly, we consider the grace that God works in us toward others. Our catechism explains that phrase in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us this way. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. How does this rich grace of God toward you in forgiving your sins, how does that affect you? You see, grace cannot be truly known without profoundly affecting people. Whenever grace is truly known for what it is, it produces evidence of its power and of its impact. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Some, How could someone know this great God and Savior? and not be so profoundly affected by this wondrous grace as to begin to walk in that light, to walk in the light as he is in the light, and to cherish his fellowship. Wherever grace enters, there is evidence, there is outward evidence, evidence in in one's conduct, in one's living. Uh, there is inward evidence in the innermost life and character of those who belong to the kingdom in our attitudes, in the be attitudes, you might say, where the grace of God enters in. There is a kind of poverty of spirit, a recognition of our smallness, our dependence upon God's mercy in the place of arrogance and pride. There is a mourning for sin. There is a hunger and thirst after righteousness. There is a meekness. Jesus is describing the characteristics of the children of God in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's not somehow describing some achievements that people somehow manage to pull off. No, he is describing the effects of God's grace as it works inwardly in the lives of people who come to know it. Grace produces a gracious disposition. How can we love a God who delights in mercy and not want to be those who delight in mercy. How can we cherish and love God's mercy to us sinners and not want to know something of that graciousness of our God and our dealings with other sinners? And so a forgiving heart is an evidence of grace. It's a, it's a primary evidence of grace. That's why it's highlighted in the Lord's Prayer. That's why our Lord returns to this on other occasions. Forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. Wholeheartedly. Now, we ought not to agonize over what that means as if it re, re, uh, describes some kind of absolute, utter perfection of love. It's a description of sincerity. A genuine sincerity. It's joined with a kind of determination of mind. We are fully determined 
as evidence of your grace. We're convinced that it is the right thing to do, and we want to do it. We want to forgive others as those who are forgiven. Now, that doesn't always mean, does it, that the desire to forgive and the heart of forgiveness and a delight in mercy always results in a kind of reconciliation and restoration. Ideally, that's what forgiveness brings about. It's not always the case. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes people continue to show themselves to be our enemies. And we can't really be reconciled to them without mutual forgiveness or without a kind of acceptance. Sometimes relationships, sadly, are broken. But if forgiveness cannot result in reconciliation, and it doesn't always mean that, it certainly does mean rejecting hatred, doesn't it? It means resisting hatred. It means fighting against thoughts of revenge or the desire to revenge. It means fighting against uh, the tendency that we have to nurse our grievances and to repeat them and to dwell on them and get ourselves worked up and cult- cultivate and nurture an attitude of bitterness and hatred. That's something else, isn't it? We have to fight against them, those things. It does mean putting on love. Even if that means loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us, praying for them who despitefully use us. And it does mean forgiving when we are asked, when faults are acknowledged to us, and a desire to be forgiven is uh, spoken. Then we must forgive. Remember what Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 17? He said, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now that sounds so unrealistic, huh? And I think it's intended to sound unrealistic. It's kind of an exaggeration, which our Lord often uses, um, for example, on the Sermon on the Mount. Seven times a day, it's unlikely that one would sin against us seven times a day, and uh, seven times that day say, I repent. It's more likely that someone might sin against us three times a year. And even then, by about the third time, you might say, you know, I doubt the sincerity of this person. He said this before. Well, the Lord Jesus relieves us of the burden of trying to judge other people's hearts and motives. And I I said that deliberately in that way. The Lord Jesus relieves us of the burden of trying to discern and judge the hearts of other people. Jesus said, take heed to yourselves. Beware of your own heart. Don't imagine that you can judge the hearts of others and that you have to determine determine an absolute sincerity and a depth of sorrow before you extend forgiveness to them. That would be to take the place of the judge. It's better to err, by the way, on the side of being mistaken. It's better to err on the side of maybe being a bit gullible. It's better to err on the side of being uh, too gracious to forgive again. Or maybe we can put it this way. It's better to err on the side of being too obedient. What does Jesus say? Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times and seven times a day says repent, you shall forgive him. Now there is one condition in which we must not forgive others. And that is if it would be sin to do so. Now, I know that sounds a little bit outrageous and unlikely, and that's the point. 
No, also, forgiving others is a matter of the heart, a delight in mercy, but it's a matter of obedience as those who themselves have been forgiven. Fully determined uh, to honor God's grace in this way also. The grace of forgiveness to us, God's grace of forgiveness to us, it must work the grace of forgiveness in us toward others. No qualifications. Full stop. Period. Amen.